Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We're going to be um, all over Scripture today, so we're just going to put one slide up uh, again, kind of showing what all the Scriptures we're going to cover. So if you guys want to take notes... Um, you know, you've got the whole length of the message to, to write down the scripture references. And uh, yeah, um, when we say we teach the Bible around here, that's what we, we mean what we say, okay? Um, nobody needs me to get up here and share my opinions or tell you stories or recite poetry or whatever. What you need is the Word of God. That's what the body of Christ needs. They need the Word of God. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes difficult to kind of to get in the right mindset when you begin to shift from what I, what I would call cultural Christianity to biblical Christianity because we've all been raised in a certain culture in the church and we do things a certain way. And, uh, and so, you know, I don't blame anybody for, for having expectations about doing things a certain way. But what we strive to do here at Bright Star Bible Church is focus on the Bible and really teach the Bible because we believe it's life-giving we believe that, that it is inerrant, meaning it, it contains no error, that is infallible. It's actually impossible for it to contain error because it was written by God. And it is sufficient, which often, often you don't hear. And what that means is all truth is derived from Scripture. All truth comes from God and His divine revealed Word, okay? So if you're looking for truth, it's kind of like that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, if you're looking for truth in all the wrong places, uh, you find truth in the Bible, in the Word of God. Jesus prayed right before He died, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So He made it very clear that is where the focus of our uh, understanding of truth needs to be. And so everything else, yes, the world may, may say something that sounds right. They may come up with nice little quips and quotes that, that you're like, wow, that's really good. But I guarantee you, if you take it back, you'll find the genesis of it in Scripture because God created all truth. Can I get an amen on that? Everybody understand that? All right. So what we do here is that is we read God's Word and then we submit ourselves to the text. We submit ourselves to what God's Word says. We don't cast anything aside. We, we, we study fervently and we want to know exactly what God's Word says and means so that we can walk in His path of righteousness, not in legalism, but in freedom. That's really, really important because the two ditches, again, are falling back into our old fleshly worldly desires and the other ditch is falling into legalism where you begin to kind of keep track of how spiritual you are and then you start looking down your nose at how unspiritual other people are because they don't measure up to your standards. None of that around here, okay? Uh, we're a family focused on the Word of God and that's what we're all about, in a nutshell, okay? The reason why we do worship the way we do, we don't have people up here because the focus isn't on people up here. The focus is on Jesus. The focus is on the truth of His Word. So we all sing together. The worship team leads from over here, but they lead as part of the congregation, not as a focal point. Your focal point should always be on Christ. So if you think we're weird, that's why we're weird, okay? We have a really good reason why we're weird, and I've been weird all my life. I'm experienced at it, okay? All right, so this morning, uh, the, the message title is actually The Holy Hatred of God and His Cup of Wrath. 
the holy hatred of God and his cup of wrath. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that sermon title before, if you've ever heard anybody preach on the hatred of God or his wrath. Okay, so good. We're, we're all, we should all be really um, just excited to hear what God's word has to say this morning. The word hate is a very strong word, and I've never really much cared for the word because uh, in human terms, it often kind of exposes our own selfishness, our greed, our offense, our jealousy towards other people. So, when, so it's a very selfish kind of hatred when we talk about it. Um, however, there are things that we can hate that Scripture tells us, and it's a righteous hatred. Okay, so let me give you a few examples. For instance, if you love newborn babies, if you love little children... You hate, you righteously hate abortion, okay? There's just, you just know that it's wrong, you know it's evil, and because of the righteousness that the, the, the beauty and the gift that children are, because of that, uh, you, you hate abortion. Uh, if you love the Jewish people, then clearly you would hate something like the Holocaust when over six million of them were, were uh, practically, they were trying to exterminate them, right? You hate that. Um, and, and here's the deal. You cannot love something at the same time uh, that you love or accept the injustice that's being perpetrated on those people or on that thing that you say you supposedly love. So if you love righteousness, there is a natural animosity against anything, uh, against anything unrighteous toward what you love. Do you understand? You love your children. Someone comes, up, comes out against your, your kid, mama, and you think that your kid's in danger, they're toast, right? It's that in, in, you're going to come at them, right? Well, in Psalm 139, 19 through 22, uh, David writes, again, Psalm 139, 19 through 22, If only you would put the wicked to death, God. Like, this is a brutal prayer. He's praying about his enemies. If only you would put the wicked to death, God. Leave me, you men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. You see, if you love God then you hate everyone who rises up in rebellion and indignation against the holy God. And that's what David is expressing here in this psalm. But did you know that the Bible also says that God himself hates? God himself hates. And while that may feel uncomfortable to us, we have to understand that the holy hatred of God is not anything like the selfish hatred that we often express ourselves as fallen human beings. Uh, to the person who would say, uh, but, but God can't hate. God is, God is love, right? God is love. Well, the Bible responds, God is love, so therefore he must hate. He is love, perfect in his love, so therefore he must hate anything that sets itself up against or tries to infringe upon the standard of his perfect love. Do you understand? So he hates all unrighteousness and all injustice, all sin and all iniquity. And, and Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 gives us a list of things that it says God specifically hates. All right. It says, uh, again, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. 
Isn't that interesting? So God's word points out these seven sins, these seven things that are described as an abomination to him. But make no mistake, scripture is very clear that he righteously hates anything or anyone who is currently unrighteous or wicked or acting in rebellion. All right? So I want to look a little closer at the word hate so we have a biblical understanding of what this means. The root word of the word hate is to reject or have no regard for. And it's always driven by God's purpose. He rejects or has no regard for. But here are some other synonyms to to further clarify. To detest, to count as an enemy. Now this is important to understand later on when we get into, into more scripture in the New Testament. To detest, to count as an enemy, to have enmity toward, to turn against or to be unloving towards. And we've all heard the cute little saying, uh, you know, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But unfortunately, just as many of these little Christianese quotes that we throw around uh, often in our Christian world, in our Christian culture, it's unbiblical. This is not a biblical thing to say. I've said it myself, so I'm not bashing anybody. I just want you to see what the Bible has to say. I believe that's a way to water down or soften the blow of what God's word uh, demands in in a matter of pouring yourself out to God and and living a a righteous life, right? Um, But God never separates the sinner from the sin. It's one and the same. The acts and the person are tied together and you cannot be both. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do injustice or iniquity. And the word injustice there is awin in Hebrew, and it means trouble, vanity, which is uh, pride or, you know, being vain, wickedness, and idolatry. And, and y'all, we're all guilty of all of those. It does not say he hates the unjust deeds of all sinners. And it does not say you love the sinner but hate the, their sinful actions. That's not what it says. It says you hate all who do iniquity. Their actions are actually why he has that disregard for them. Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous and his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is holy and the hatred is holy. The disregard, the rejection, the enmity, his turning away from the sinner is a righteous reaction against every person who apart from God, Scripture teaches are vile, they are depraved, and they are wicked in their very nature. There is no good in them. And before you start checking off boxes, if we're going down this list saying, yep, I'm good on that one, I'm good on that one, I'm good on that one, remember what Jesus said in Mark 10, 18. He says, there is no one good except God alone. No one good except God alone. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one, not a single one. That we've all fallen and and, uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Now, for the time being, I want each of us to leave ourselves in that category for the purpose of understanding the scripture this morning. So you're going to have to, some of you are going to have to imagine because you're so holy and it's been a long time for you, you know, to have put yourself back in that place where you were not in a right place with God. Okay. Uh, But I want you to put yourself back in that category before you walked an aisle, before you repeated a prayer, before you had that moment, right, when you felt the Lord calling your name. And here's why. 
Because sometimes when we survey our past experience, we come to the realization that we didn't quite understand the gospel fully, that there was something we missed, a treasure along the way that we didn't quite pick up on. So this morning, take yourself back to that moment or that time before Paul says in Ephesians 2, we had no hope without God in the world. Take yourself back to the place of realization of the depths of your despair. You say, Pastor, I was never in the depths of despair. Well, then this message is for you. This message is for you. We must go back to the moment we realized that we were at the end of our rope. We were at the place where we were banging our head against the wall and we were hanging by a thin thread with hell's fire just below our feet, leaving us with only one option, and that's crying out to Jesus. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember what life was like before that moment? So in that state, what does God's Word tell us? Tell us is in store for those who are at enmity with Him. It's very simple. He says you must drink the cup of His wrath. That is where you were. You will drink the cup of His wrath. Now this cup that the Bible talks about takes time to fill because God is merciful and He is patient and He he pours out His loving kindness. He lets it go for a long, long time as if you're, you're putting your coffee in your cup and it takes time to fill up. But when that cup is full, When that wrath is full, when the time comes, he pours that wrath out in an unimaginable way. Psalm 75, 8. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Certainly all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink its dregs. You're going to drink down every swallow of his wrath. In that state, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and give it to all the nations to whom I send you to drink from it. Then they will drink and loudly vomit and act insanely because of the sword that I am going to send among them. This this wrath that the nations are made to drink, they drink it and the result is a loss of a presence of mind, of sanity. And that's what we see in Romans 1 that I preached back several weeks is, is the, the, the wrath of God is, is revealed among men when they choose to reject God, when the nations, when our leaders turn their back on God and the wrath of God is being poured out. And what happens is the nations become insane they become depraved. They forget what is right and wrong. They start talking about things that, that uh, 50 years ago would have been unthinkable, but today is the norm in our public schools. It's being taught in our schools, things being accepted by society and brought into the church. We look around us and every day we see things that we believe is just absolutely insane. Every three days I say to myself, I read an article about a man wanting to marry his dog, and I'm like, the world's crazy. What in the world is going on out there? That's what's happening. They're drinking the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 51, 6 through 8. Flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not perish in her punishment for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to repay to her what she deserves. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord. Intoxicating all the earth, the nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going insane. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her. Those are all 
Old Testament verses, you might say to me this morning. That's Old Testament, Pastor Mike, that we're in the New Covenant. Well, just buckle up. I read those verses to establish that this is something, this cup is a mechanism that God uses throughout all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, uh, to illustrate not only His wrath, but His patience and His mercy towards His creation. It was that way in the Old Testament. It was described that way in the Gospels, and, and, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. And it remains that way at the end of days. We see as an unfolding in the book of Revelation. And we're going to turn there now. Revelation 16, 19 through 20. Revelation 16, 19 through 21. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled. Picture this for a moment. Every island fled and no mountains were found. This is ahead in our future. And huge hailstones weighing a talent each came down from heaven upon the people. And people blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because the, uh, and was extremely, it was exte- extremely Severe, And they were obstinate, you see. They, they would not repent in the face of God's wrath. They shook their, their fist in the face of God. They spit in His face again and cried out in rebellion against Him and against His wrath. And John the Revelator says that they will cry out. It's going to be so terrible at one point that the people will cry out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the wrath of God. Revelation 18, 4 through 6, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. You see the, 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 the illustration of, of the, the sinfulness gathering more and more and more until it overflows and God cannot uh, stand by and allow it to go any further. And God has remembered her offenses. Verse 6, pay her back even as she has been paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, then another angel, a third one followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of his anger, his righteous anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And yet God's wrath will be perfectly righteous, and it will be swift, severe, complete, and everlasting. That's what's at stake. Make no mistake. As the body of Christ, if, if, that, if that reality is not something that grips your heart about your family and your friends and the people that you love, that eternity is at stake forever and ever and, and what is to be faced for someone who is found without Christ upon their moment of death, or if they so happen to survive until it's time for this cup of wrath to be poured out. It's a devastating and terrifying thought, and it's sad. Frankly, it's tragic. I hear people all the time say, well, God saved me from my sin. But let me just correct you slightly. 
God saved you from himself. Do you understand? God saved you from himself. God saved you from his wrath. Your sin was the means that got you in, in, in a wrong relationship, a separated relationship with God. Okay? But God saved you from himself. And that is a terrifying thought when you think about eternity. You've heard that the lake of fire, many times I've heard it, the lake of fire, the second death, is absent from the presence of God. That God, that His presence is, is away from the, is not anywhere to be found. But that, you know, if Scripture teaches that God is omnipresent, then that itself is impossible because God is everywhere at the same time. And of course, we, we see that in Scripture, if we look back at those uh, verses that we just read, if you would, let's look back at Revelation 14, 10 and 11. I want to draw your attention to this. Revelation 14, 10 and 11. He also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and brimstone, listen, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. This is where the unrepentant person stands. This is where you must find yourself before you walk an aisle or repeat a prayer. You need to understand where you are in relation to your eternity before you can even accept the grace and mercy of God. You stand naked before a holy, righteous God, undeserving of His mercy, undeserving of His grace, undeserving of His loving kindness, destined to drink the cup of His wrath, to face His righteous, eternal punishment. In that place... You must find yourself without hope, as Paul said. There is no one worthy. Every existing human being in the history of man, not one single person, person is worthy to reconcile their relationship with God. And all the created spiritual beings, the Elohim, the angels, the, the seraphim, the cherubim, um, the, all of those, as, as powerful as they are, not one of them can change your fate or my fate. Turn to Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 5. This is incredible, and you'll, you'll get a, a really a, a pretty big chunk of understanding from the book of Revelation just by understanding what I'm about to, to reveal to you here. There's a scene unfolding in the heavenlies, and John describes this in detail as a scroll has been presented to be opened with seven seals, okay? That's how they used to write. They didn't have chapters and you turn page. There's a scroll, you'd read a chapter or a section, then you'd break the next seal and, and read the next part of the scroll, then you'd break the seal and that's how it unfolded. But this is not just any scroll, this is the scroll of all scrolls and here is what's supposed to unfold until we find this problem presented in the text. First, you can think of this scroll as the title deed to all creation. There were seven days of creation, there will be seven seals to take back creation from the evil, uh, the power of evil. It is a reverse creation or a recreation in which God would finally take back the earth from the influence of the devil and of evil. As each seal is broken, God will righteously judge wickedness on the earth, including these fallen spiritual beings that we've talked so much about. Creation itself would once again be in chaos and tumult. God, through His wrath, 
Everything that he has created will be undone, renewed, purged, and purified. After the first six seals are broken, there would be an interlude, a period of silence. Like, remember, you know, the moments of silence we have at ball games or at school when you're remembering something tragic that took place. There's this 30 minutes of silence in heaven where um, God will send forth his evangelist immediately following this to spread the gospel on the earth. The 144,000 all of them with divine protection during this tribulation period. Period. Then the seventh seal is broken, and this would unleash judgment such as the earth has never seen before, each beginning with a trumpet blast, of which there would be seven trumpets total. Okay? So that's the context that we're about to read. This would culminate after the seventh seal is broken and all the trumpet blasts are fulfilled. The, the final trumpet blast would culminate with Christ's bodily return on the earth, his wrath uh, finalized against the people on the earth at that point in time, and with the full title deed to earth in hand when he returns to bring righteousness. So let's look at the gravity of this moment unfold in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's what's happening in, in heaven. This is happening in the throne room. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look in it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So in this moment, John realizes all is lost if no one could be found worthy to open the title deed, taking creation back from the powers of the enemy. In that moment, he felt hopelessness and he wept greatly, drenching himself in tears, broken because of the reality of that moment. And, and this is where we stand, when we stand upon that precipice, when we consider our eternity, and who we are in relation to a holy God. We are enemies of God. We have rejected Him. Our sin, one single sin, stands as a great offense towards a holy God. We are not only uh, will be, we will be disregarded because of our sin, we will be turned away because of our sin, but we will also drink the cup of His eternal wrath and righteous judgment. That is where we all stand in the face of a holy God if nothing could be done. In Luke 22, 39 through 44, Luke 22, 39 through 44, just stick with me here, guys, because I'm going to walk you through some New Testament stuff, and I think you'll gain an understanding of, of the, the weight of the cross that Jesus bore. This is taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane, starting Luke 22, 39 through 44, and he, and he came out and went, as was his habit, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Now when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you, do not become, that you do not come into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and, and be, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat, became as great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. 
Now, if you think he was agonizing to the point of sweating great drops of blood just because he was about to carry that, that wooden cross, he was about to be flogged, he was about to deal with the physical anguish and the most cruel form of, of uh, the death penalty that has likely ever been known to man, then you're, you're only slightly right. Sure, I'm, I'm sure that bothered him to some degree, but it was not the physical trauma that Christ faced on the cross that saved us from our sin. I want, I want to be clear about that. That was something that he did not look forward to, but that was not why he was troubled so greatly. He prayed that if the Father was willing, he asked that the cup would be removed. Well, what cup? The cup of the wine of the wrath and vengeance of the Holy God. That was the cup that he was asking to be taken away. Sure, there was physical suffering involved. Again, he went through all of that. But as Brett read earlier in Isaiah 53, written over 600 years before Christ's crucifixions, it says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people, to whom the blow was due, it was their sin that deserved the cup of wrath. And his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That was the tomb of Joseph, prophesied. 600 years prior. But the Lord, listen, but the Lord desired, God desired to crush him. It means it pleased the Father to crush him. It was God's will to crush him, causing him grief. And it says he, it rendered him as a guilt offering. And then we look in Matthew 27, 45, and we see Jesus' perception. Uh, perception on the cross, what he saw, his perspective. Matthew 27, 40, 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? God did not turn away because he couldn't bear the physical abuse that Jesus was taking upon himself in that moment. Jesus was facing the full force of his father's wrath to be crushed by his own father, to be hated and forsaken by his own father, to become the enemy of his own father. Not because of anything he had done, but because of what I had done and because of what you have done. That's what he took upon himself that day. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It pleased the Father to crush His Son. And Jesus in that moment felt the abandonment and rejection of His Father. He felt the hatred so that you and I might be reconciled unto Him through His Son, Jesus, because of His righteous sacrifice, you and I can stand boldly before the throne room of God. We can go to the Father with no guilt and no shame. So let's return for a moment to that scene in, in heaven in Revelation 5. There was no one found worthy, and John was weeping greatly. Beginning in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, 
The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and you purchased People for your God with the blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's us. That's the scene in heaven. There was only one found worthy because he was slaughtered like a lamb. A true follower of Christ has an unimaginable future ahead of them. That is the hope of glory. That is what we have to look forward to. Yes, life can be good. But don't insult eternity by making it seem like our walk with the Lord is all about this 70 to 100 years that we have on this earth. Guys, we got eternity with Jesus to look ahead to. But you know, you aren't just automatically in, in those pearly gates just because Jesus died. You have to come to the realization that without Him, you are hopeless. You can know the truth and still reject it in your stubbornness. I see it all the time. I see people who wear the banner of Christ follower, yet there's absolutely no evidence of it in their lives. And I'm not walking around taking notes either. But look, Scripture's very clear that there should be a difference between us and the world. Romans 2, 5 through 6 and 8. Romans 2, 5 through 6 and 8. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That cup is being filled. And the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will repay each person according to his deeds. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. He specifies this is not just for Israel this is for the Gentiles too. You're a Gentile. We're all Gentiles unless you're of Jewish descent. Unless you're of the seed of, the, of Abraham, you are a Gentile. And he's saying this is, uh, God is no respecter of persons here. This is uh, for everybody. All right? You have to die to your old nature, your desires, your old way of thinking, and follow the truth of Scripture. Because to love Him is to obey the truth of His Word. Jesus said in John 3, 36, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on them. Do you understand? He took the wrath, but it remains on you until you pour yourself out before Him and understand who you are and who He is and that you are desperate without Him. You don't just repeat a prayer and walk an aisle and it's, you know, it's not like going through those motions are magical in some way, right? Which unfortunately, I believe, folks, the church has made it something like that. And so we've created a ton of false converts who are no more led by the Spirit of God to salvation. They were led by some uh, wily preacher who knew how to draw out their emotions, okay? Listen, in your mind and in your heart, if you need Jesus, cry out to Him. You feel Him compelling you to come. 
You're led by His Spirit first. And when you are led by His Spirit, you don't need music. You don't need a great preacher up there uh, preaching. You just need the gospel. You just need to understand the gospel. You need to understand that you're destined for the cup of wrath and that Christ already drank that cup. And all you have to do is come to Him in your weariness and in your desperation. And He will give you the, the fountain of living water instead. That's the glorious gospel. His desire is for you to lay everything at his feet and surrender everything. And when you do that, your past, all the mistakes you've made in your past, all the consequences you've faced because of your sin, including the the future consequences that you would have faced, the condemnation in life that you feel when you fail, when you sin and you fall into sin, all that's gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he already drank the cup. If you're a believer and you fail, right, don't go drinking the cup again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from that point on, you get to walk in freedom. You get to walk in a way that honors God with your life, not because it's an obligation, because you're trying to do this and you're not trying to do that, but because I love Him and He took the cup for me, so therefore I will walk in honor and reverence of Him and His holiness from here on out. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's freedom. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, So there is sorrow involved when you come to Christ, but then once you found Him, there is no more regret. There is no more condemnation. It's simply up to your conscience from that point on in praying and wanting to honor God with your life and your actions. So as you follow Him, some things may be okay for me that might not be okay for you, and that's all in how God and the Holy Spirit reveals that to me personally. Okay? And vice versa. But there are some things in Scripture that are pretty staunch and pretty clear that we shouldn't have anything to do with. So again, we don't regret the mistakes, but we don't purposefully repeat the mistakes either once we're saved. Ephesians 2, 12 through 19, and I'm going to read through some of these uh, quickly, but Ephesians 2, 12 through 19, remember, Paul's Paul's, uh, writing here, Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ. So he's going back. He's saying, put yourself in that place to the church at Ephesus. Excluded from the people of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away, you were abandoned, you were cast aside, you were hated by a righteous God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, that hatred that God had towards you when you accept him. His blood abolishes that hostility, that enmity, that hatred. Do you understand? So we're in right relationship with God again which is the law composed of the commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might take the two into one new person, in this way establishing peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by by having put to death the hostility. His hostility toward you was put to death on the cross if only you will accept him. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or foreigners to God. You are no longer on the outside looking in, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That's all the Old Testament saints like Abraham and, and Noah and all those guys we're going to chill with in heaven. All right. You are fellow citizens with them and you are of God's household. You have been adopted in his family. So you see a loving God must hate all that is in opposition to the standard of his holiness and his love. His nature absolutely demands it. But the question is, will we look upon the cross of Christ and be broken over our sin and fall into his merciful arms? Will that be the place that we find ourselves? As the Apostle Paul in Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over to death because of our wrongdoings and, and he was raised for our justification. If he had remained in that tomb, that, that dead body in that tomb, as every other person who's claimed to be a Messiah or Christ, their bones are still in the grave. If he had remained in that grave, it wouldn't have been enough. He needed the victory of the third day, the resurrection. And that's where we will begin next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your cross. Lord, may we look upon the cruelty of that cross knowing that it wasn't just the weight of the physical torment and torture that you endured, but, but Lord Jesus, it was the weight of my sin, the weight of every person in this room, the weight of sin and iniquity of every human being that's ever breathed their first breath and breathed out their last in this world across history, Lord. An insurmountable weight, Lord, that only God, that only the God-man could endure. So, Lord, we thank you that you are willing to drink of the cup of his wrath and suffering and that you did that for me so that I might be free. Lord, may our understanding of your cross be rekindled new today and that we would never, ever take for granted what you did the day on that cross and how you defeated the forces of evil. And what a wonderful, beautiful thing that third day was when you raised victorious, putting death in the grave. We praise you, Jesus, and we love you. It's in your, pres your, 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 your presence we say and proclaim that you are the only one worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you were encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you.